You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader hosting this week and with me is Colin Campbell. It's just the two of us this week and we'll be talking about the budget, uh, which Colin covered all week. Uh, All budget, all the time podcast. Uh, The Senate budget came out this week and with it is some news on teacher raises, uh, state employee raises, uh, taxes, spending. Uh, So, uh, Colin, before we get into all the details, um, what's kind of the, the big picture takeaway from this budget? Yeah, so we're, we're finally done with the Senate budget. It was a very rushed couple days because it came out, uh, I guess, right before midnight, Tuesday night, and then the final vote on it was uh, about 3 a.m. on uh, Friday morning. Um, and, and so the, sort of the big uh, issues with this budget were sort of taxes versus spending. Um, the Senate has, I think, the uh, when you compare it to the house the biggest tax cut plan it's the same tax cut plan they've already voted on so it's uh it's been out there for a while in, in terms of cutting the income tax rate while raising the standard deduction cutting some corporate uh, and, and business in, uh, income taxes as well um and then the concern of course is that leaves you spending less on the um, actual program side so uh, the raises for state employees for teachers retirees not as big as what we saw in Governor Roy Cooper's budget that came out a couple months ago. Uh, And so there's some concern and consternation over that and various other programs that Cooper wanted to fund that uh, didn't get funding in the Senate budget plan. Uh, But that's sort of the, the, I guess, the big picture of uh, how things look on the Senate side. And as we get into the House, which is supposed to roll out its budget in the next couple of weeks, so we can kind of expect they may want to spend a little bit more than the Senate if history is any indication, and they may want a little bit less on the tax cuts, but still some form of, of tax cut likely in the uh, House budget and then in whatever the final negotiated budget uh, we get in the next couple of months is. Pretty much party line support? Yeah, there was no, uh, I think no Democrats voted for the budget, no Republicans voted against the budget in the Senate. Um, very much uh, each side had their own process for and strategy for how they were handling the, the debate on Thursday. The Democrats, uh, I think, took the opportunity of the initial evening budget debate to uh, highlight the differences with the governor's budget. This is something they didn't really have the option to do last year when they were doing the budget because, of course, the governor was Pat McCrory and they weren't, you know, huge fans of his budget either. Uh, in this case, um, even though obviously Cooper's budget and the governor's budget in general is never going to be up for a, a vote on its own, they sort of made the case that Cooper has a better plan and here are some specific ways in which it uh, differs from what the Senate wants to do. So that took up most of the debate early on. Um, the Republicans sort of focused on, you know, this is uh, the, the fiscally responsible way to, to handle this, that, you know, the tax cuts are, are giving money back to the people whose money it was in the first place, and that, you know, we can't spend everything we get because uh, then you end up, the next time there's a recession, um, having to cut back on programs because you've uh, not put enough into savings, you've uh, spent too much of what you were making um, going into it. So it's definitely sort of a, a competing budget philosophy, and a lot of that uh, tension played out on the, the Senate floor on Thursday. And they went into early this morning, for early Friday morning when we're recording this, 
you were up pretty late listening to it. Uh, you would think that maybe this would uh, go pretty quick once they do the final vote, which has to happen after midnight for procedural reasons. Uh, but actually, that that kind of became a drawn out uh, debate. So, uh, what was what was happening? Yeah, this was sort night? of the interesting thing, and I think, from my understanding, the Republican leadership in addition to those of us in the press and various other people watching it, thought that this was going to go fairly quickly. A lot of times what happens is when they do these after-midnight sessions, uh, they get all the debate and the amendments and stuff out of the way in the first round before the first vote, and then it's just, you know, okay, we're coming back after midnight. You know, there may be a few minutes' worth of debate, but within 15 minutes you take a vote and you go home, and it's probably the same vote that you or vote tally that you had earlier in the day. Uh, this time was interesting because uh, the Democrats had – uh, apparently in an effort to sort of focus the attention on comparing with the governor's budget, didn't run any amendments uh, during the first round of debate before the first vote, which is something they typically do um, in past uh, Senate budget cycles that I've watched. Um, the Democrats will come up with amendments that sort of have no chance of passage. They're doing things like uh, adding funding for schools or any other sort of uh, priority the Democrats have, while in order to do that, taking money away from the tax cuts or something else that the Republicans want. And of course, the Republicans shoot these down pretty quickly, uh, but it's still sort of a symbolic uh, statement that the, the Democrats are making by doing this. So I was kind of surprised that they didn't do this uh, in the first round uh, and thought, okay, maybe this year they're not doing any and they just sort of taken a different strategy. Well, we get to midnight and the Democrats are suddenly all full of amendments that they want to offer, some things that, uh, doing things like adding funding for broadband or increasing the level of teacher raises in the budget while at the same time taking out some of the tax cuts or uh, pulling out some other uh, priorities the Republicans had. And, and the Republicans started shooting these down, but they kept coming. Every single Democrat, it seemed like, had showed up armed with an amendment they wanted to run at midnight. And so by about 1245, uh, the Republicans were clearly getting frustrated. They were tired and wanted to go home. So they called a recess till 230. Um, and during that time, we didn't really know what was going on or why they felt the need to pause the proceedings and, and drag on the night all the way to uh, 233 o'clock. Um, and then three o'clock, around 233 o'clock, they came back um, managed to use something called the substitute amendment where they vote on a different amendment than what the Democrat had put forward. And this was an amendment from Senator Brent Jackson um, that uh, the way he explained it uh, added some funding for uh, pilot projects trying to combat the opioid ep epidemic in North Carolina, something uh, Democrats and I think Cooper had sought additional funding for. Um, and that passed, I think, on a party line vote. And then immediately they, they took the vote on the budget as a whole and went home at about uh, three o'clock. Um, so did I, they block further debate on uh, further amendments or did the did Democrats, Democrats apparently stop? had decided that they were going to by three o'clock, they were ready to cut their losses and go home. They had some additional amendments uh, that they wanted to run. Several of the Democrats had actually sent me copies of what they were planning to propose, uh, but then decided not to uh, do that at, at three o'clock and prolong things further. And now I'm looking at the uh, this opioid epidemic amendment that sounded like a pretty non-controversial thing the way that Brent Jackson explained it. Uh, but if you actually look at the details as I'm doing now that I am actually awake and have a clear head to do so, um, it's cutting funding for a lot of things that Democrats want in exchange for doing the opioid money. Uh, so it's things like uh, some school programs and projects in some counties up in northeastern North Carolina that are represented by a Democratic senator who is one of the ones running amendments at uh, after midnight. There's a cut for a position in Governor Roy Cooper's office, which is, I think, a federal government a legislative liaison, somebody essentially lobby for Cooper in Washington. Uh, that's cut by this. So it, it's clearly 
the Republicans, in getting frustrated, it seems like they then decided to, on the one hand, throw the Democrats a bone by doing more with opioids. On the other hand, sticking it to them by specifically pulling out funding for things in Democrats' districts. Okay. All right. And uh, this is a bill that this is a budget that uh, spent about half as much as Cooper's, right? Yeah. So about his was a 5% yeah, increase. This is 2.5, um, which is actually less than inflation and population growth, I think I saw in one, one source. And of course, one of the big items is to do this uh, tax cut. So it would take it down from a hair under, take the personal income tax down from a hair under 5.5% down to 5.35%. And uh, would also raise the standard deduction. Anything else that's uh, notable about what they would do in taxes? They've been calling this the billion-dollar uh, middle-class yeah, tax cut. Yeah, there's also a corporate income tax cut in there. Um, Democrats are are basically using that tax cut to make the case that this is, a, in their words, a billionaire's budget, um, to which I think one of the, the senators replied, you, you know, we only have like four billionaires in North Carolina. Uh, most of them have their residency somewhere else, and the Republicans claimed that was actually because of the, the tax rates that you, you, if you actually have a billion dollars, you're going to go to Florida or something. Um, there was some uh, uh, pretty interesting debate. You quoted somebody talking about how the Democrats were reading from scripts. Yeah, the, the Republicans were sort of making fun of them for this. Um, you know, normally the Democrats uh, sort of stand up individually and they kind of speak off the cuff. Uh, and then Republicans will sometimes, you know, ask them a question or speak in response to them, challenging them on some of the statements that they've made. Um, in this case, the Democrats took a different approach this year that sort of allowed them to hold the floor for um, about half an hour at least early on in the debate. And the way they did it was that uh, Senator Mike Woodard from Durham was sort of leading the discussion, but he kept asking questions of fellow Democrats to sort of toss the baton to them, let them have the mic for a few minutes and then take it back. So Republicans got kind of frustrated. They were for a while shut out of having sort of a back and forth debate. So some of them were making fun of it and saying, you know, it's, uh, we need more film incentives because you guys are great at movies standing there with your scripts that, you know, may or may not have been prepared with some help from the governor's office since they were about the governor's budget. Um, rather than having sort of the more freewheeling off-the-cuff debates that are more common in the legislature. Uh, maybe shades of D.C. a little bit. Uh, yeah, Cooper runs a, a pretty tight operation, and he's got some some folks who've got some D.C. experience. And um, I, I will say I think Cooper's office and staff have made a much stronger push for his budget proposal than uh, McCrory's staff did in, in recent years. Um, you know, the governor's budget, like I say, it's a symbolic document. It's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to go anywhere whether the uh, governor is a Democrat or a Republican. Some of the ideas may show up in the final budget, um, but governors know that, you know, it's more of a here's what I'd like to do if I had the power than uh, sort of having it be their budget. But uh, Cooper's folks have been strong about putting out um, different data points about their budget, how it affects specific counties on different initiatives that he'd like to start. Um and, and continuing that through the process, not just in the week that the uh, governor's budget rolled out in early March. So it's, you know, he definitely wants to keep the conversation going about what he wants uh, instead of just being about uh, the Senate versus the House, which is usually what we're talking about at this stage of the process. Yeah, we are talking a lot more about the governor's budget. And uh, how are these two budgets different on what they would do for teachers? The uh, Senate budget would give 3.7% raises, um, which sort of on a on an average level is maybe not hugely different from um, what we've seen from the governor's office. But I think there's some major differences in, in how they 
distribute that. Um, and so how does that work? By the way, I should say, we this is also the week that we got the latest numbers for uh, teacher pay and how we stack up with the rest of the country. The uh, NEA puts out numbers every year, uh, and we're uh, North Carolina is 35th for average teacher pay. It's just barely shy of 50000 dollars uh, a year the average teacher pay uh, so the Senate's proposing um, another raise uh, what are the what are, how are these two budgets different yeah so in the teacher raise uh, proposal um, Cooper's budgets basically an across-the-board raise for teachers it differs slightly depending on your level of experience so you might be getting anywhere from I think three percent to even six percent for uh, teachers at certain points in the the pay scale um, and it will also include raising the starting salary experienced teachers would get more even up into the you know 30-year mark of their career uh, the senate budget um, focuses the raises a little bit more they're somewhat smaller but they're also not everyone gets not every teacher gets a raise under the way the uh, the senate is handling it uh, so there's really no or a very tiny raise for teachers in their first couple of years um, the biggest raises are for sort of mid-career teachers, I think, and then when you get up to the 25-year-plus range in the Senate budget, uh, there's no raise at all. And the explanation for that from the Senate folks um, is they're working towards sort of changing the way the teacher salary scale works. Right now, um, you don't get to your maximum earning potential until you're 25 years in, and, and the Senate's argument is no other career is like that. You in, in any private sector job, you're going to get to the top of the salary scale much sooner than that. So what the Senate wants to do is get the teachers to that point by 15 years in. Um, but they're doing that in sort of a gradual process. So what that means, practically speaking, um, is that you end up not giving much to the most experienced teachers who then complain that you're not valuing their level of experience and the, the amount of time and years they've put into uh, teaching kids because they're not getting a raise through this whole process. So uh, also raises for state employees, I think 1.5% or $750, uh, whichever is larger in the Senate budget. Uh, Cooper's uh, raises for state employees were a little bigger. Um, uh, retire his was a bonus, too, on theirs, and uh, the Senate doesn't include any sort of bonus. Uh, but it was uh, state retirees that were really uh, making a stink after the, the budget came out. Uh, they didn't get any uh, cost-of-living adjustments in this Senate budget. Uh, Cooper would give them uh, some kind of a cost of living adjustment. So, what is what's the differences there, and what are the retirees saying about? Yeah, it? so the Cooper budget um, doesn't necessarily give the retirees everything they want. Um, it's only a one-time uh, cost of living adjustment, which means that basically you'd get more money this year, but you wouldn't be guaranteed to also get more money next year and in years subsequent to that. Um, what retirees would like to have is at least a two percent cost of living raise that. Uh, is permanent. Uh, that's something Senator Joyce Waddell, who's been one of the, the biggest advocates in the Senate for uh, retirees' issues, uh, has pushed for. And I think she actually had an amendment to that effect uh, last night in the, the wee hours of the morning. That, of course, didn't go anywhere. Um, but the problem for the Senate folks, and then they've made this case, is they'd, they'd like to do more for retirees, but the problem is the sort of increasing pension liability that uh, the state has not yet figured out exactly how it's going to deal with. So they're worried that if they uh, give a cost of living increase now, um, that that's going to just make the liability worse years down the road. Um, and so they've, they've left that out this year. The retirees argue that um, they've just been shut out of uh, raises for years now. They've only gotten, I think, a total of 2% 
recurring cost of living since 2009, which is, I think, well below uh, the rate of inflation. So they're, they held a press conference this week where they talked about how it's, you know, they're having to make choices between putting food on the table and paying medical bills and uh, a variety of other stresses that they have because they're not getting more uh, money through uh, these budgets and that they, they just don't feel valued by uh, the way the legislature is, is handling uh, raises the last couple of years. So they have, it was kind of a, a prayer meeting dynamic. There were some chants being led in the, the press conference room with some of these uh, sort of retired, a lot of them former teachers talking about, you know, uh, they worked so hard for so many years, they're on their feet. Now they've got to, you know, go pay, co pay to go to the podiatrist because they're, you know, having various stress injuries from having taught for 30 years and don't feel like they're getting what they need from the state. And you had written about how uh, we they've they haven't gotten very many of these uh, cost of living increases over the last few years, a, a couple small ones uh, here and there. Um, the the pension liability uh, is also uh, prompting some calls for um, switching out the pensions for. 401ks uh, for future employees, but that wasn't in the budget, right? Yeah, Harry Brown, the Senate budget writer, when I asked about that, uh, told me that they really want to take a more deliberate approach on that end of things, that they're they're definitely still considering that proposal that uh, was floated a couple weeks ago, but they didn't feel like it was uh, at a stage where they were ready to put it into the budget because it is a, a pretty sweeping change for future state employees if, if they go down that road. What they did do uh, in this budget is end um, medical insurance benefits for future employees who retire. So this wouldn't affect people who are employed by the state now and plan to retire in the future and would like to have insurance in retirement. That would, uh, They would still have that under this plan. Uh, but if you're hired after, I believe, July of 2018, um, you would not be planning on getting any sort of medical benefits when you retire. You'd have to find uh, some other source of insurance. You'd still get a pension, but you wouldn't get um, health insurance as part of that. Okay. And, of course, North Carolina does have one of the better funded uh, pension plans in the, in the country, but it does have a liability uh, uh, that's, that's pretty significant, and, and there's also a liability for that uh, state health plan, and that, uh, that dovetails with the medical benefits that you're talking about. Uh, so stay tuned on all that. There are a couple of little interesting things in the budget uh, that will be interesting to see whether they uh, are picked up by the House or not. So the Senate wants to uh, cut the UNC Law School, right? Yeah, and that was one that uh, I was kind of surprised didn't get a little bit more attention given that uh, I know at least a few of the Democrats in the Senate, I think, have some connection to UNC or, or the law school itself, maybe, or graduates. But I didn't hear any mention of that in the uh, debate, as far as I know. That's one where I think they would cut the law school's budget by about 30 percent, um, and instead some of that money would be diverted to the UNC School of Medicine at its campuses in uh, Chapel Hill and, and Asheville, serving more students in those locations. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of reason given for this, but I, I do note that um, in budget years past, uh, some of the Senate Republicans have made the argument that we, we need doctors a whole lot more than we need uh, more lawyers. Um, and then there's also been uh, some political uh, back and forth between the UNC School of Law and, and particular people there, uh, like the uh, Poverty Center and, and Gene Nickel, who of course is a outspoken critic of the Republicans and, and writes some pretty fiery columns uh, in our paper uh, on the opinion page. 
Um, so the UNC School of Law, even though perhaps most of their functions are, are very nonpartisan, there are a few aspects or a few players involved in the School of Law there that um, perhaps Republican senators are, are trying to sort of stick it to. Yeah, well, we have a debate going on just this week that, uh, that Jane Stansel in, in our newsroom wrote about uh, dealing with whether the Civil Rights Center there should be allowed to continue to um, be able to file lawsuits and have students uh, basically learn by suing. Uh, and uh, so that's going on at the same time. Uh, they, uh, the Senate budget has a, a provision to, to split up an agency that just came together a few years back. They, uh, uh, the legislature broke up the public safety department and, uh, or I'm sorry, put the public safety department uh, into one agency and now would break it up, excuse me, and uh, take out the prisons and the juvenile justice agency. Um, and then uh, there's some cuts to environmental positions. Uh, DEQ would uh, lose a bunch of uh, jobs under this. Craig Jarvis wrote about both of those things this week. Uh, and um, both Craig and Lynn wrote about how uh, the uh, plan to raise the age of juvenile crime uh, is in this budget in a little different form. So um, misdemeanors. Uh, would no longer go to adult court for um, juveniles who are 16 and 17 years old. They would they would go to uh, juvenile court. Um, there's a competing house plan that would uh, move that would be more sweeping. That would move uh, most crimes, uh, low level felonies and misdemeanors into adult court. Was there any debate over that during the? It really um, didn't come up much, which I was kind of surprised by. Um, the Senate version of it. Um, is, like you mentioned, a little bit uh, less uh, sweeping and immediate than what the House is looking at. The Senate uh, would aim to phase in uh, a raise the age plan by 2020, um, which means that uh, there's not actually funding for this in this year's budget because it's only a two-year budget. Um, and that sort of sidesteps some of the debates that are going on in the House about uh, the cost of making this change that some folks are, are concerned about. All right. And uh, one last thing that you wrote about that's uh, uh, obviously got a, a lot of a real, uh, impact on, on people and uh, I'm sure uh, people are interested in who have kids in high school is driver's ed. Uh, so they, uh, I guess this is a perennial debate and, and they're talking about whether to allow schools to charge uh, more in driver's ed fees than they do right now. Yeah, it's capped right now at about $65 for the entire class, which is it seems like a pretty good deal, uh, Which, but of course means that the schools are uh, subsidizing it fairly heavily, um, and this would allow uh, schools to charge the full cost. Not anything more. They couldn't use it as a you know profit generator, uh, but they could charge the full cost of driver's ed, um, and then it, in return, the state would be reimbursing families up to, I think, $275 range, uh, roughly, um, to pay for those costs, and then uh, the schools would still be able to offer waivers to a low-income family, and then the schools themselves could get paid back through this uh, government incentive program, um, sort of slightly different from the plan to completely cut funding for driver's ed, which was in previous Senate budgets, and they did not uh, make it into the, the final budget compromise. So this could be another uh, tension point with the House this year as they go into negotiations. Okay. Anything else on the budget before we move on to some of the other goings-on this week? Or? I don't think so. I think, uh, obviously, lots of little provisions and probably some stuff, that, you know, as always is the case with hundreds of pages in a budget that we, we may hear of in the coming weeks now that it's passed and perhaps people are looking into it more closely and, and perhaps protesting some aspects of it as the budget process continues. So another thing that uh, you wrote about this week that's very interesting to us, and I hope interesting to other people, is newspaper legal notices. Uh, so right now, uh, cities and counties 
have to place these ads in the newspapers. Uh, and there's a bill to that would do away with that requirement uh, and allow cities and counties to to post these on their websites. Um, so what's the thinking behind that idea? Yeah, so that's uh, something that's come up for several different sessions now, and it's not actually uh, made it into law, but there are some lawmakers uh, sort of acting on requests from uh, city and county government organizations uh, would like to eliminate the current requirement that certain legal notices, things like public hearings, uh, open bidding processes for government contracts, not be required to be put in the classified ad section of a newspaper. Uh, instead, they'd like to be able to just put those on their own uh, local government websites. Uh, and so that's a bill that uh, passed the House uh, with sponsorship from uh, Republican Senator Ch- Trudy Wade from Greensboro. Uh, there's a similar version in the House. Um, going forward now, although it's unclear how much support that has versus a a more of a compromise version that would keep uh, those uh, notices in newspapers. So it ends up being sort of a transparency argument. Uh, A lot of the supporters of this argue that fewer and fewer people are reading newspapers now, uh, which of course we don't appreciate, but you know, that's probably a a true statement on some level. Print newspapers. Print newspapers. We're reading us online in, in, you know, great numbers. Um, but uh, they feel like this is sort of an obsolete thing. I think one of them pointed out to me that the system was set up to replace uh, tacking up a notice on the courthouse door um, back possibly a century ago. Um, and now they feel like this could be a more efficient way to uh, go about this process. The newspapers feel like uh, this is going to just make it harder to find out what's going on. The, there's, there's no provision in there that you know, requires this to be on the homepage for a local government. They could bury it deep in the website somewhere uh, where no one's ever going to find it, uh, and then they may not know that you know, there's a rezoning hearing going on down the street and that someone wants to build a mega tower or something on their block. And as a citizen, you then have a harder time finding out that that's going to go on and, and having the opportunity to have your say before uh, decisions are made by your local government. Um, but it would be a sort of cost-saving measure for some of the towns. I think they said uh, it's in the millions if you count the entire state and all of its local government agencies. So it's not huge in the perspective of the all the municipal and county budgets in North Carolina, but certainly a lot of these governments feel like they could spend that money somewhere else um, if they had the opportunity not to, to fulfill this requirement. And, of course, I suppose cities and counties that uh, wanted to use this as uh, sort of a, a, a chip could uh, sort of say to their local newspaper, well, we're going to take away your uh, your legal notices. We're going to decide not to run legal notices yeah, could, in your paper if you don't give us favorable coverage. Yeah, because it's not an automatic thing. The this, this cities and towns and counties can still decide, uh, do they want to continue their current policy or they could set a new policy in which they don't use uh, newspapers. And so that is a concern that it, it could be infringing on uh, sort of First Amendment uh, freedoms, particularly for some of these small papers that, uh, you know, don't have a big staff anyway. Some of them are locally owned. The publisher knows everybody. Um, and that's certainly a, a large portion of their revenue. I, my understanding is the way the revenue model works for newspapers, uh, larger papers like ours don't rely as heavily on these legal ads, uh, but some of the really small, small town newspapers um, rely on it for a, a larger portion of their uh funding. So some of these places are saying they could lose a reporter who covers the local government if they don't have the revenue from this, uh, or some could even, you know, go out of business entirely if their revenue model is thrown off. 
Well, always a good time to remind people to uh, put an ad in their local newspaper. Um, so uh, what else do we have? We, uh, you wrote about an anniversary this week. So it's the five-year anniversary of Amendment 1. What did, what did Amendment 1 do? Yeah, Amendment 1 uh, was back in 2012, um, kind of in a different world for uh, LGBT rights uh, when North Carolina voters went out during the uh, presidential primary and uh, lobbied to... Uh, basically put it into, uh, into the state constitution that uh, same-sex marriage is illegal. It was already illegal, uh, but the idea was putting it into the constitution would make it stay illegal longer, um, which, of course, proved not to be the case. Two years later, there was federal court rulings, um, and same-sex marriage, of course, now legal all across the country, including in North Carolina. Um, so this is sort of an interesting milestone that we're now exactly five years out from that vote, and uh, the landscape for LGBT folks has uh, changed significantly in that regard, but we're still fighting battles over uh, their rights and issues that they're concerned about, HP2, of course, being a, a notable one. Uh, so when I talked to Chris Scrow, who uh, I guess we should note is uh, actually leaving Equality NC, he's probably been the uh, most recognizable spokesman for LGBT advocacy in, in the state for many years now, including during uh, the Amendment 1 process. He announced uh, Friday that he's headed to a uh, human rights campaign for a job in Washington, D.C., and is, is moving up there to to continue his fight with a, a more national scale. Uh, but I talked to him this week about the anniversary, and he was saying that, you know, it's a sign of, of how far the their movement has gone, but how far it, it still has to go uh, for, for them to get the rights that they, uh, they are seeking. Uh, so it's sort of interesting to look back on that and see what a difference five years can make in, in sort of how the state views these policies. And, of course, we're still debating uh, LGBT rights five years later. There's uh, HB2 uh, consumed uh, a huge amount of energy last year. And just this week we had uh, the news that uh, uh, we would have a lot of jobs uh, coming into Wake County from Credit Suisse. Uh, the, is that how you pronounce that? I guess it I should Credit know. Swiss. Credit yeah. Suisse. <laughs> I think AutoCorrect was, <laughs> was changing it to Credit Susie on some of the uh, tweets. I don't I'm know. I always <laughs> want to pronounce it in a fancy way because yeah. it's spelled in a fa- So anyway, uh, had a bunch of jobs coming in because uh, of the company saying that they, um, you know, that the replacement for HB2 um, met their uh, standards to uh, to expand. Um, we also had the uh, uh, Court of Appeals at the Fourth Circuit in Virginia hearing arguments on the uh, bill dealing with um, magistrates and whether they um, can recuse themselves from mar- marrying uh, couples um, because they have religious objections to marrying same-sex couples. Um, so there'll be uh, uh, probably many more anniversaries in the future to... Uh, to look to. Um, anything else before we wrap up? We won't do headliner of the week, but as you said, there's there's, uh, uh, there's definitely uh, some some moves this this week. Chris Chris Scrow going to a national group. Also, um, William Barber uh, yeah, also leaving, going national uh, sort of. to going going national. Um, so we would have a lot of candidates, and maybe next week uh, we, yeah, we have I'm more than one person. About my, against myself for headliner <laughs> yeah. of the week. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so uh, I think that's it, unless yeah. you have any more. And, that covers um, it for this week since there's just me. And we'll come <laughs> back uh, at you next week with probably a larger group for Domecast. Uh, for Colin Campbell, though, and Jordan Schrader, uh, I, I don't know why I said myself <laughs> in the third person. Uh, for Colin Campbell, <laughs> I'm Jordan Schrader is what I meant to say, and we'll see you next week on Domecast. Take care. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News & Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.